Donna Lauren. And I'm Dr. Adam Jirachi. And you are listening to Love's a Secret Weapon podcast. Welcome to our Christmas episode of Love's the Secret Weapon podcast. In our season finale, Donna recalls her childhood memories of growing up in a predominantly Christian neighbourhood, being the only Jewish family on the block, and her yearning to participate in Christmas and the joy she experienced all around her, despite her own family's lack of participation. 
Then we'll go directly to an interview Donna has done with her friends, Gary and Joan Gand, who are responsible for providing the sound for every major musical act that performed in the Chicago region of the USA for 50 years. Gary and Joan have also founded the non-profit organization Chicago Bauhaus and Beyond, which celebrates and promotes 20th century modernist architecture and design. Go, Donna. I recorded my first record when I was nine years old. A fellow named Jesse Hodges had an office in a historic part of Hollywood called Crossroads. He wanted me to sing a Christmas song on one side of a 45 record, and he would supply the music for the B-side, My Christmas Prayer, which he performed. As a child, I always loved Christmas, so I really enjoyed singing I Think It's Almost Christmas Time. There was a conflict in my family who always celebrated the Jewish holidays and never Christmas. This exception to the rule delighted me. I grew up in a neighborhood where we were the only Jewish family other than the half-Jewish Hispanic family across the street where my friend Marlene lived. When the season changed and the holidays were upon us all, the houses on our block would start taking out their Christmas lights and decorating their front yards. Literally every home reflected the spirit but ours. We were the dark house among all the lights. My mother, although not very religious, insisted we have Hanukkah. So every year she'd pull out the homemade Jewish star Maury had constructed and painted silver with glitter. Little blue lights were strung to all of the points and it took its place of honor in front of our living room fireplace. Of course, we never knew when Hanukkah would be. It changes every year according to the Jewish calendar. Christmas was something I could count on for being there the same time every year. The feeling of the buildup surrounded me. Early in December, the neighbors would speak of the presents they would start piling up and hiding from the kids so Santa Claus could surprise them on Christmas morning. There was talk of the night before when families would come together for Christmas dinner, and the smells coming from each home filled the air with turkey and gravy, pumpkin pie, gingerbread cookies special Christmas candles, and my favorite, stuffing and sweet potatoes. Sure, for Hanukkah we had gelt, 
gold coin wrappers covering chocolate, and a dreidel that would spin for good luck. But not the same as Christmas list. What do I want for Christmas? Don't you just think about that all year? It's a feeling of belonging that I had with a much broader scope of people. To be quite accurate, there was one other house on the block that displayed all blue lights. I never went to that house nor went inside because there were no children to play with. I can only assume they may have been Jewish. Essentially, being the only house that was dark on Grandview Boulevard from Victoria to Palm symbolized isolation. So I'd intermingle with Mrs. Fellows, the lady who lived on the corner of Grandview and Sharnock. Every year, she'd invite me to keep her company while she wrapped her Christmas presents on her front porch, where she set up a rather extensive gift station. Funny how she would confide in me and tell me not to tell my friend Cheryl what she got for her. It was Santa who was bringing the presents. She was going to hide them until Christmas morning. This went on in all the homes around me. I would hear the Sullivans getting ready for school in the mornings. Yes, our houses were that close. Betty loved Ella Fitzgerald and would sing along to her music while Mrs. Sullivan prepared her son Tommy for school. I would go over their aqua-trimmed house to be part of the festivities and walk in to see Opal applying butch wax to Tommy's hair and comb it with the part on the side. She had a very particular way of making Tommy's hair lift up in the front, not a butch, but a wave. Mrs. Sullivan lavished gifts on her family. On Christmas morning that same year that I recorded my first record, Another exception to the rule happened when I heard a car park in front of my house. I lifted my window shade and looked out my window. The car was a red Chevy convertible. It belonged to a singer who was in the Trooper Theater with me, an ensemble group in Hollywood. His name was Scott. I remember his favorite song was Deo, the banana boat song by Harry Belafonte. When Scott performed it, he wore a shirt unbuttoned to his waist, just like Mr. Belafonte. We had a momentous occasion to perform at the Moulin Rouge on Sunset Boulevard, the current location of Nickelodeon. On that show, I was to play the part of an all-American girl and sing a song called The Auctioneer by Leroy Van Dyke. There were two very challenging aspects to this. First, learning how to sing... $25 bidget, now $30, 30 will you make it 30 bid it on a $30, $30, will you give me 30 will you give me $30 bill? And next, having to dye my hair blonde. My mother found a gold hairspray that would change the color of my hair temporarily and therefore spare me from having to use strong chemicals when I was only nine years old. I ran to the front door and opened it. To my surprise, there was a present on the threshold, but the Chevy convertible was gone. I guess Scott was playing Santa Claus and wanted to surprise me. I ripped off the wrapping paper to find a toy tiger, just the right size for me to hug. No one in my family was awake, and so I slipped back into my bedroom with my furry toy. 
The tail really surprised me when I touched it, and it made the tiger roll over. Completely blissed me out. I checked to see if my family was still sleeping, and I decided to take my Christmas present, the first one I ever received, and sneak out of my house to go next door. I was a little scared because I just never took chances like this, but I really wanted to be included in the celebratory feeling that permeated the house's all around me. There was an actual hush in the neighborhood with all the families gathered around their Christmas trees ready to open presents. I quietly climbed upstairs to the back door of my neighbor Camille's house. Pressing my ear to the closed door, I listened to the family inside. My own feelings of exclusion vanished for the moment while vicariously enjoying the giggles from the children. But I could get caught. So I tiptoed downstairs to my house successfully. Chicago through doing commercials for TV and radio. Please welcome my dear friends Joan and Gary Gans to our podcast. Hi Joan. Hi Gary. Donna, how are you doing? Hi Donna. Great to talk to you. <laughs> Thanks so much for for joining us on on our little podcast here. And uh, you know, the days that I I toured, you know, I got a taste of of what it takes to sing through a microphone and actually enjoy what comes through. And you guys make it responsible. You know, you're responsible for making that happen. And I just wanted to know, you know, how you got all that started. And tell me, just take it from there and all the acts that you've serviced and who you've known all through the years and the venues you've participated in. You got a week? Yeah, <laughs> I have forever. <laughs> okay, we'll, we'll try and condense it down to uh, a length that won't put your listeners to sleep unless they want to go to sleep. The way we got started was that uh, I was a kid musician like you, and right. I, I performed with my family during the folk days, what we call the folk scare, uh, folk scare. Of, the, <laughs> of the early 60s, and uh, of course, you know, Segregation was a big issue at the time, and the weapon totally. of choice when you went out to march totally. uh, was, the, was the guitar. Mm-hmm. So uh, my dad, who was a, a lighting designer for uh, commercial buildings, worked for a lighting company, uh, 
was also a musician in college, a trumpet player. And so we always grew up with music. And one day he bought a guitar for my mom for her birthday and bought a music book. And, of course, back then you had to buy your guitar at a record shop because there weren't any guitar stores. He brought the guitar home and handed it to my mom. And she said, oh, that's beautiful. And she hung it on the wall. <laughs> okay. So after about half an hour of oohing and eyeing over it, and my mom was the folk music fan. She listened to Bob Dylan before anybody. She knew about Simon and Garfunkel before anybody. She was really the, you know, the super fan of the folk music and, you know, got us all listening to it. Oh. And, uh, but my dad, being uh, a do-it-yourselfer, uh, got the Mel Bay book and took the guitar down off the wall and went down in the basement. And after a couple of hours of punking around on it, he figured out how to work it, figured out some chords and figured out some songs. And then uh, later he came up and said, hey, I'm, uh, I'm playing this guitar. Are you kids interested? I have a sister. And so he showed us how to play the guitar. This is all on a Sunday. I mean, it happened oh my God. <laughs> on my mom's birthday. By the next week, uh, I had decided I'd rather be a banjo player than a guitar player because everybody was playing the guitar. So my dad rented me a banjo, five-string bluegrass banjo from a local music store, and I started taking some lessons, and I became the banjo player. And my sister was the singer, and my dad was the guitar player, and before you knew it, we were the Gann family singers. Phenomenal. And my, you know, my background is at five years old, I touched a piano and I said, this is what I want to do. Mm -hmm. I just touched it, you know. <laughs> I just felt the energy from it. So I took piano lessons, um, I studied classical when I decided I didn't want to be a classical pianist because I fell in love with rock and roll. Mm -hmm. I studied jazz piano for four years. We had a great teacher in near my house and whose, uh, name, was? whose name was Alan Swain. Credit where credit is due. Right, right. Had a yes, that's right. Alan Swain Studios and taught everyone in Chicago how to play jazz piano. Everyone who's anyone, you know, went that's, through there. That's so, amazing because in Chicago, you, you know, I, as you get older, you must have gone to clubs or had had that exposure. To oh, yeah. Songs. Yeah. Definitely, definitely. And I saw Jimmy Smith when I was in high school. My parents took me to see Jimmy Smith, Oscar Peterson, Bill Evans, because they would have family afternoon shows at the Jazz Showcase. So I was a real jazz fan, and when I met Gary, I had just started playing in rock bands because, you know, they always needed a keyboard player, and they just would say anyone who could play got sort of drafted into playing in, you know, the <laughs> rock band. And I met Gary, and we hit it off after a little bit of a rocky start, but once we hit it off, we uh what do you mean of the rocky start yeah i mean you said okay. rock and roll i mean yeah what's the well, rock he um i cooked for the band so my friend and i made a feast for gary's band because we used to hang around at their rehearsals and this is a rock band this is after the folks here presided the Beatles came out, and of course, I put my banjo down and got an electric guitar. So fast, <laughs> yeah, yeah. Fast, fast forward about five years, and, and now uh, Joan and I are 16, and I'm playing in a hard rock band, 
with Paul Hamer, who went on to be uh, the designer of uh, Hamer Guitars. He's by Cheap Trick. So, you know, there was something in the water in Deerfield where I grew up, where a lot of musicians came out of uh, out of Deerfield, a lot of uh, sound men also. So by then I'm playing in a uh, hard rock band called Bunyan Stew. Okay. And we had a terrible drummer. I hope he's not listening to this. <laughs> and, <laughs> and he was a sweet guy. We loved him. He was our good friend. He just really was a saxophone player and didn't know yeah. it yet. Yeah. yeah, he was a saxy guy. He right. he gave up drums for sax. But, yeah, uh, now, the, the truth of the matter was his family had a huge house in a very risky neighborhood, and we practiced in the basement of his house. So that's why he got to be in our band, because he had the rehearsal space uh, that sure. was on, underground. He also, he also had a fantastic kitchen. They had two sub-zeros and a big there you go. <laughs> and his mother was really good looking. So oh, right. we, we like to uh, we like to rehearse over there. And so, so back I, to the kitchen. <laughs> yeah, so that's where I, I met Gary. We cooked this feast, and we made, uh, my friend and I made our first healthful cooking that we had ever done. And now, of course, this is the way we eat, and this is the way you eat. But at the time, brown yeah. rice was a new thing. Brown okay. rice was, you know, just, just coming into vogue. And so we made a big um, container of brown rice, and we had salads, and we had grilled vegetables, and we had all kinds of delicious things, and we made chicken. And so, okay, we didn't know how to make brown rice yet. You know, this 1970, you know. <laughs> we made it like you'd make regular rice, and we put some mushrooms in it. And, yes, it was a little on the bland side, right? It was just plain. But you were supposed to have it with the chicken and the other things, and you know. So Gary, Gary's there, and he he takes a big plate full of food, and he digs into the rice because he's vegetarian. And at that time. <laughs> and he says, "Oh my God, this rice! It tastes like sawdust. Who made this?" <laughs> he must be my future wife. Yeah, right. I'm standing there. I'm like, well, I worked really hard on that. Oh. You, know, you should have better manners than that. You should have been a little bit nicer. He says, well, it's, you know, it's true. <laughs> well, you have evolved, I must say. <laughs> yes. So um, we've both evolved. So now I know how to cook delicious rice, and he knows to kind of hold back a little bit when you want to make a point your opinion. Now, Gary, have mercy, will you? Well, the, the part that Joan hasn't told you yet is that right. she was a, she was an expert bread maker. Ooh. And who doesn't love fresh baked bread? And so when we got past the brown rice thing and she started making bread for me, that's when I felt it up. See, because that's when you need him. Right. Exactly. Uh, sorry. Sorry. Exactly. I love that. So here we are, falling in love over bread and music. <laughs> and we had our own rock band for a while, for four years. And we got really into progressive rock because, you know, being the keyboard player, I love to listen to Keith Emerson of Emerson, Lake, and Palmer and those types of bands. King Crimson was a big favorite. And after doing that and having fun with it, we realized we were not going to get famous playing that kind of music or doing whatever we were doing. But what was happening was 
every other band would come to see us. Mm-hmm. Because we were sort of the musicians, musicians, and mm-hmm. our sound was good, and our equipment worked, and we had all kinds of equipment they had never seen, like Moog synthesizers mm-hmm. and effects pedals that Gary used, and mm-hmm. speakers. And the other bands would come see us, and then they would come up afterwards and introduce themselves and say, you know, we really need help with our equipment. We just can't make it work you know, would you be available to work with us? So that's how it all started. Mm, mm. Wow, wow. And, and tell me, t- t- tell, please tell me, tell our listeners, some of the artists that you eventually started providing this wonderful sound equipment and your stage settings as well. Yeah. You, well, you know, design. I mean, we work for everybody, but I, I'm thinking specifically of talking about some of the people that your listeners would be familiar with, you know, we, I mean, we work with all the, the current artists, but the, the uh, uh, you know, we work with, of course, when we started in the sound business, it was only 1976. Mm-hmm. So, so a lot of the groups we were working with were the 60s groups, mm-hmm. uh, you know, that, that were just starting to tour at the time. Now, something that uh, your listeners may not remember is that uh, prior to Woodstock, you did not see bands in large settings. I mean, if you did, they sounded terrible because they were just using the, you know, the, the paging horns that were in the facility, like in the... Um, like when the Beatles played, all you could hear yeah. was screaming girls, right? Yeah, yeah. You yeah. couldn't hear them, and that's what eventually, you know, broke them up. Broke them up. Yeah. yeah. That's right. That's right. So, so these places did not have sophisticated equipment yet. Mm-hmm. And in order to get sophisticated equipment... I had to build it uh, because it was not available. Most of the uh, good speaker systems were in America and the good electronics were in England. So we had to assemble the stuff. For a while, I had a wood shop in our garage, and I was building my own speaker cabinet, and uh, I was driving the truck. Oh, man. Yeah. And John was booking, booking the gigs. So I would be on the road. And this, you know, this would be in the late 70s. I'd be on the road, and there were no cell phones. You know, there was no computer. There was no Internet. So what would happen is I would call her from a payphone using something called an AT&T phone card. Right. <laughs> so for, for those of you out in the crowd there that uh, aren't familiar with that, you would take your phone card and you would dial a 12-digit number, and that would be your code. And then it would build to your account. So you could stand at a payphone and talk for 15 minutes without having to put coins in. Pour quarters in. Now, just so for the rest of you folks, we used to have a thing called a payphone. Right. Okay. And that was a phone. It was a telephone that was in a little glass box at the side of the road. And the receiver was attached to the phone. Can you believe that? That's so somebody wouldn't steal it. They would attach it. So I would call Joan once a day from wherever I was, you know, Iowa or Indiana or Michigan or Memphis, and I'd say, honey, where am I going tomorrow? And she'd say, you're going to Minnesota. Whoa. And I'd say, that's 16 hours. She says, yeah, we got to keep it short. <laughs> and I, I would drive to Minnesota, and I would wow. show up, and the band would be, you know, Sister Sledge, 
or the spinners or, you know, uh, you know, an R&B app. And then I'd call her after the show was over early in the morning. I'd say, where am I going to next? She says, you're going to Southern Indiana, to the University of Indiana. Oh, that's not too bad. <laughs> yeah, right. That's only 12 hours. And oh, time, yeah. <laughs> and there's a time change. Yeah. Oh. I, I said, do you think I have time to stop home on the way? You know, take a nap for an hour and do my laundry? She says, yeah, we can make that work. <laughs> yeah, give her a hug. <laughs> right, right. And I'd, I'd drive to Southern Indiana to, to do sound for uh, Cameo, you know, somebody like that. So I was bouncing around, you know, the Midwest, and it was a different act every day, and it was a lot of fun. So some of the big acts that we worked with back then and we're still working with now, one of our biggest ones is Frankie Valley from the Four Seasons. Right, right. We've been, we've been doing Frankie's tours for a number of years now. Of course, there are no tours right now because we're waiting for the concert industry to open up. That's and right. And I, I believe Frankie just turned 90. What? Yeah. Ooh, I saw a headline the other day. It says Frankie Valley performing at age 90 for you know some charity benefits. So he's he's still out there and he's still doing it. But uh, back in the day, you know, some of your your friends, people I know that you sang with and know uh, that we worked with, uh, and you know we worked with him early on and we kept working with him later. Uh, we worked with Peter Noon a lot from Hermit Dermot. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Worked with Roger Daltrey from The Who. Fantastic. Uh, do you remember Tommy Rowe? Sure. Okay, well, Tommy was the first guy that ever tipped me as a sound man. Oh, man. <laughs> he, gave me, he gave me, you know, nobody would give the guy the time of day. You know, he had, he had several hits, you know, Sweet Pea and Dizzy and Sheila, and we were working at, uh, at an amusement park. Nobody was paying any attention to him, and I was just my regular nice guy self to him and got him through the gig and made him happy. And at the end of the show, he gave me 20 bucks. Now, 20 oh. bucks in, in 1979. That's like a hundred dollars, you know. Yeah, so, absolutely. So, Very generous. Really, really nice. So uh, I have a soft spot in my wallet for him. <laughs> <laughs> what an exciting, exciting uh, career yeah. that you you both shared. I mean, and you cultivated into just an an expansive regional uh, business that basically you have what kind of on hold, or are you still facilitating sound equipment? Well, right now we're calling it hibernation. Hibernation, okay. Yeah, we can't do, you know, we can't do anything. And in the Midwest, um, everything is shut down in terms of concerts. So we're just on hold, you know, hoping and keeping our people on staff as much as we can. Hoping that maybe by next summer things will be better if there's a vaccine. Now that we have a new president coming in. Thank you. Thank we are you. so, so happy and, Thank and you. hopeful uh, about that. So we're hopeful that by maybe next May or June, uh, there will be able to be concerts again. But if there aren't, you know, it's just uh, we're hoping that people will come up with some other options, you know, creative ways to have music because we miss Virtual. It. Well, I had an idea since, you know, we're talking about this. By the way, I looked it up, Frankie. Frankie's 86, so he's still a young man. Oh, he still has a few more more to go. So I I think one solution to the concert industry would be, since video plays such a, uh, you know, big part in in the live concert experience now. I mean, my funny story is I went to a Stones show because Daryl Jones, who's the bass player in the Rolling Stones, is from Chicago, and he and I used to play on uh, uh, radio and TV commercials together. Oh, 
And uh, one day he says, yeah, I said, you know, I'm going to have to quit the session business because I think I might have a gig. And I said, with who? He says, yeah. well, I can't, I can't tell you until I get the gig. He says, yeah, it's not going to happen, but, you know, I'll let you know. So anyway, the, the next day we go in to do a commercial for, uh, not for Dr. Pepper, I think it was Coors. <laughs> a little more potent. <laughs> yeah, yeah. When, when they needed somebody to play 60s guitar, I used to get the call. So Daryl says to me, yeah, I, I got the gig. I said, with who? He says, the Stones. <laughs> and, I mean, everybody in the studio, we just let our, our jaws hit the floor. That was 25 years ago. He's been with them ever since. Whoa. That so, is uh, So, anyways, we, uh, we're at a Stone show, and I'm on stage, and there's this guy and his kid on the stage during the show, and he's sitting in, you know, in the, the VIP seats. And I asked him, I said, how much did that ticket cost you? He says, oh, my ticket was 3500 Ticket for my son was 1500 so I said, okay, so, you, so you're in for uh, for five grand. He says, yeah. And I said, worth it? He says, sure. Sit on stage with the Stones? Are you kidding me? I said, yeah, sounds good to me. I watched this guy for the rest of the show, and he turned his chair around facing the video screen and watched the whole show on the video screen. Even though Mick Jagger was like 30 or 40 feet away, he watched it on the video screen because you could see it better and it was close up and all the rest of it, you know, after spending that kind of money. So that leads me to the importance of the video screen. And I think what could happen in the future is that the bands could perform on a stage like they do now. The video component could be more important. You know, for example, each guy could have his own video screen, uh, which uh, Genesis used to do so that, you know, whoever you want to look at, you just look at their video screen and you see them. And then you could build this whole arrangement in a large parking lot that would mm. be across the street from a huge building, like a hotel, for example. Okay. So what you do is, like, you know, take take a hotel in Las Vegas, you know, MGM Grand or something like that. Oh, oh, sorry, I get you now. Yeah, you build this whole thing in the parking lot, and then you book a room as as you know, not not to go gambling necessarily, but to, to see the concert. So you pay your money for the room, you know, five hundred thousand, whatever it is. You stay there with four friends. You sit on the balcony. You drink from the mini bar. You can, you know, so you're you're protected from the rest of the people in the audience. Yes, it's a, it's a vertical situation. But everybody at the hotel is there to see that. Yes. Right. Wouldn't that be cool? And then from Genius. the act, from the act yeah. standpoint, you're on stage, you're staring at this 20-story building filled with people that are cheering and applauding and shouting out the windows at you. So you still get your audience feedback. Because the problem is if you put people, you know, if you isolate them behind plexiglass or you put them in their cars or whatever, as a performer, you and I know, you know, the reason we do it is to get the interaction with the audience. Exactly. The connection, yes. And I'm trying to figure out, well, how do you get the interaction with the audience? And i got to tell you, if you're standing on stage, you know, for example, we went to Lollapalooza a few years ago, and we were on stage with the Black Keys. Oh, yeah. Love that. And when Dan you Albert. looked out, when you looked out, and it had, it's one of the best places to perform in Chicago, because when you look out from the stage, you see all the office buildings in the loop. Oh, yeah. That are all lit up. And they're full of people because everybody works in the loop and they just stayed in their offices and watched the show from there. So you look up and you see thousands of people in these skyscrapers cheering and waving and flashing their lights. And it's a really great experience for a band to be able to play that way. So I think you could take that and 
expand it and make that a new way to perform. That is phenomenal. You're hearing it here first. We we have um, we just kind of came up with this idea in honor of thinking about our discussion with you today. Oh. And we hope somebody else will do it because that's not the business we're in. We just want to provide the sound for it. <laughs> well, you know, I, I could pass that on definitely because, you know, about two years ago my son Joey was on the Roger Waters tour. Yeah. And, and he was scheduled to leave again, you know, this past June, but, you know, obviously Roger had to postpone. And, yeah. um and he's been doing, you know, some virtual things and, you know, videoing the recording sessions and so forth and then yeah. showing them online. But um, they're hungry. And so Radiohead, too, he's involved with, you know, and these people are just so hungry to get back on the stage and connect with, with their fans and, you know, exchange that energy so I can pass it on you know yeah that way. yeah maybe maybe this little idea is a seed and it'll get planted and grow somewhere we would love it if we hear that especially Roger Waters he's someone who's so cutting edge and shows you know his production and everything could pull it off you know absolutely I will let you know I mean if, if, if there anything materializes that would be phenomenal Okay, Influ <laughs> influencing the world from our little circle here. Right. That's exactly, I mean, there is no distance I'm discovering, you know, that from the so-called isolation from, from corona, we're still able, even more so actually through technology, to stay connected, you know, even though we can't hug and, you know, be as close physically, we can still have a, a real experience together, so... Um, and, and we don't have to shower. <laughs> now, don't give me that image, please. I'm better than that. <laughs> All you have to do is go down and, and rub up against one of your citrus trees, and that's right. fine with me. <laughs> there you go. <laughs> so I, I read a quote, Gary, that your favorite quote is, architecture is frozen music. And I wanted to know, tell me about your segue into architecture, and Joan, please share your passion for preserving architecture. All right. Well, when Gary and I first met and when we got over the brown rice incident, <laughs> <laughs> I invited him to go on a tour of Frank Lloyd Wright houses with me, and I didn't know if he would enjoy it or not, but he was very up for it, and we had a great time together. And it turned out he did have a passion for architecture and design. He just, you know, grew up with it, with his parents being interested. My parents were interested. And so we started becoming fans of Frank Lloyd Wright and then other things from that era and moving forward into the 50s and 60s. Sure. Um, and Chicago is such a great place to see all that stuff. Mm -hmm. it, it was all around us. So we, we made that sort of our fun hobby is when we had a little time off, we would go do some sort of architecture tour. And if we visited another city, if Gary was touring by himself, he would always go to a museum or to mm. see a building or, you know, do something cultural everywhere he was. And he would tell me about it. And then eventually he was offered a European tour King Crimson of all bands, 
mm-hmm. one of our favorites. And so he said, yes, I'll do it if Joan can come along. So I got to go on that one. All right. And it was King Crimson and Roxy Music touring all over Europe. And it was an incredible experience. We saw amazing things. We saw, you know, the historic architecture that all of our architecture is based on. We really sure. Got, because we hadn't ever been to Europe at that point in time. Mm-hmm. So we got a real education there. We also managed to get sick and feel terrible. But oh, <laughs> so um, eventually, you know, that became more of our lives when we tur- when we turned 50. We're both the same age. When we turned 50, we said, We've got to stop working so much. We had both been working seven days a week, you know, since we were 17. And we were just ready that we could take a step back and have some personal time to do mm-hmm. some of the things that we love to do. And that's beautiful. So, And so you kind of, you made, you made that your um, lifestyle. Yeah. What happened was we were coming back from a music trade show and we went through Los Angeles and we took an architecture tour in Los Angeles and then I don't care about that I went crunchy <laughs> and the uh, woman in Los Angeles recommended somebody in Palm Springs she says well if you're in into architecture, you got to go to Palm Springs and take a tour there, which we did. And we ended up staying in a hotel, and in the next room was Julius Shulman, who is the world's foremost West Coast modern architecture photographer. And I had grown up in the Midwest seeing Julius's work and really fell in love with California modern architecture through his uh, publications of his photos. So we got to have breakfast with Julius. It's Amazing. We got to be fast friends, and he made us fall in love with Palm Springs through his eyes. He was in his 90s at the time, and and he uh, had been coming to Palm Springs since he was 17, and uh, by the end of the meal, he had convinced us that we should buy a house in Palm Springs. So we went looking the next day, and uh, within a couple of months, we had purchased our first house in Palm Springs, you know, figuring, well, you know, we'll We'll go once a month. You know, that's how we'll break up our, our workload in the winter and, you know, get out of the snow. You know, after 50 years of snow, I had enough. Yeah, okay. Me so, too. <laughs> so, so we started spending time in Palm Springs. And the more time we spent there, the more great people we met, like you, for example. Oh, bless you. Uh, Thank you. You know, all, all of these creative uh people in entertainment and design and theater and television, you know, they were all going to Palm Springs. So uh, we got, got in the middle of the circle there because of our background in architecture in Chicago. We started a preservation group called mm-hmm. Chicago Bauhaus and Beyond, Chicago Bauhaus and Beyond, based on the Bauhaus from Germany. Uh, when they got displaced by uh, Hitler in the 1930s, uh, they mm-hmm. came to Chicago. And, mm-hmm. and Misandro came to Chicago. And uh, at the time that Mies came to Chicago, uh, he he was in his 50s. He was the same age that we were. Uh, Frank Lloyd Wright by then was in his late 70s. And so, uh, you know, we had grown up, you know, my mom used to talk about Mies this and Mies that. And we, you know, see the buildings being put up, you know, uh, 880 and 860 Lakeshore Drive, and so we were kind of steeped in that. 
so we uh, started an architecture preservation group because the only preservation group at the time in Chicago was for the Frank Lloyd Wright uh, homes. Mm -hmm. uh, and, but nobody was doing anything about the homes that were later than that. And, and you know, when, when anything gets to be 50 years old, mm -hmm. it's, a, it's a dangerous spot because at that point a lot of it's been forgotten, starts getting torn down or thrown away or all that. And then, you know, a few years later, everyone's like, wait a minute, you know, this is great stuff. You know? Sure. So we decided to take that on, and uh, we had a little get-together with a bunch of our friends. We started a nonprofit group and uh, ended up saving some homes. Mm. Ended up, uh, Joan and I did a book together with Julius. Julius did the photography, and uh, I wrote it, and Joan edited it. And uh, so we, we had a Chicago Modern book. And, uh, you know, to uh, accomplish a lot with it. Fortunately, fortunately now, mid-century modern is a buzzword. And, you know, at the time when we started this, mid-century modern, the, the term had just been coined and people really didn't know what it is. But now it's in the mainstream. Young people know what it is. You know, Mad Men had a big influence on people uh, on television with mid-century modern decor. Totally. Uh, you know, that 70s show. Brady Bunch, you know, a lot of these great old shows people started looking at with uh, with new eyes. And, of course, you know, mid-century modern now is, is, is the thing. It's it. And even, you know, we love when we watch your old shindig programs, the set design is amazing. Mm -hmm. And the lighting. And the lighting, absolutely. Yeah. yeah. Now, yeah. now, we watched it in black and white. I don't know if those shows were ever in color. but They were later on. They were yeah. toward the end of the show, yes. But yeah. I prefer the black and white, actually. Well, you know, funny thing growing up with black and white is I can look at a black and white photo and tell you what all the colors in the photo are. Yeah, yeah. Because, you know, we, we had to fill it in ourselves, which is a, is a, is a funny uh, talent to be able to look at. Fifty Shades of Grey and say, no, that's not gray, that's pink, that's blue, that's green, that's chartreuse. Well, humans <laughs> use humans' imagination, you know, I mean, that, that's, what, that's what makes us tick. Yeah, yeah, well, they say dogs see in black and white. Well, so, you know, the, the connection of architecture to music, it just seems like a lot of musicians really, really get architecture you know yeah. and they're really into it if there's some you know commonality in our brains you know that we tend to like that of course we like art and and you know sculpture and all that but but that's abstract right architecture is it's like usable sculpture it's usable design we find it just makes people happier and Go the ahead. acoustics yeah. also i mean that's what i appreciate in in a home that has a certain crest to its ceiling or, you know, the walls are constructed, the windows are placed a certain way for the airflow and the light, mm -hmm. and um, the acoustics of, of the building, you know, there's an, there's an energy in those walls. Absolutely. And that, yeah. you know, and that one of the adjuncts in our businesses during the 80s and 90s, we built a lot of recording studios for people. Oh, you did? Oh. Yeah, because that was the time when uh, we were the first Apple dealer in the music industry. So that was the time when, when computers started to uh, be used for making music, and we were the go-to guys. And so we equipped a lot of the people with, uh, with, the, with the early computer systems. And then they'd say, well, gee, you know, so we're going to put this stuff. And they say, well, you know, I was going to put it in, in my basement. It's like, no, no, yeah. no, you don't want to do that. You know, 
Yeah, so or then, in my closet or something. <laughs> yeah, in my closet or in the, in the bedroom. So then, you know, we started. Actually, one of the tricks I used to tell guys when we first got into recording, as I said, if you want to tell if your song is a hit, go out and play it in your car. Yes, on the radio in the car. Yeah, on the radio in the car. You know, like put it on a cassette. They were cassettes back then. We said, play it in the car, listen to it in the car, and see if it works. You know, That's like right. You, you start tapping your toe, and you hear the vocals, all the rest of it. Conversely, the other thing I used to tell people early on is I said, listen, if you don't have a vocal booth, if you don't mm-hmm. have a good place to record, go out and record in your car. Because back then, the acoustics inside cars were really great because, you know, the cars were big and they had, uh, you know, plush seats. And remember Heavy metal. Had, and they used to have the acoustic ceiling. Do you remember that? They had the perforated sure. ceiling. Yeah. Oh, yeah. I mean, look at your collection of cars. You have an well, Avante. Yeah. Sure. And, uh, and a little, uh, what, 57 T-Bird? Yeah, yeah, Thunderbird. I know. I had my Mercedes for a long, long time. And yes, yes. He sounded sound. super good. Good sounding cars. So, yes, yeah, so you know, again, tying that in with uh, acoustics and energy and, you know, Shulman, Julius Shulman used to call it visual acoustics. That was his oh. description of what he did, you know, when you're looking at the dimensions and the diagonal lines and all of that. And, and, you know, you and I have hung out enough that, you know, the first thing I do when I walk into any room, whether it's a restaurant or an auditorium or a hotel lobby, I clap my hands and I listen to the reverb, see if it would uh, make a good drum room. (laughs) (laughs) Test the sound out. Oh, yeah. Well, that's how you're wired. (laughs) Yeah, yeah. Well, guys, may I um, put you on the spot for a minute here? Sure. And ask you the question that, that I've asked a few people that we've interviewed. Joan and Jerry, what or who is your secret weapon? Okay. Well, I, I would have to say that it would be our parents uh, who are gone, but every day, and I mean every, every day, we talk about what my dad would do, what Joan's dad would do, what Joan's mom would do, what my mom would do. Joan's mom taught me about Scott. She taught me how to look at art. She taught me how to understand furniture, how to understand uh, decoration, how to collect. You know, I was always a guitar collector, but I didn't know anything about collecting art, uh, which she taught me about. We were, yeah, we were very fortunate. We had great parents on both sides that we stayed friendly with as we got older. You know, we didn't grow apart like so many children mm-hmm. and parents do. And we stayed, you know, good friends. But I, I think, you know, our secret weapon is each other, yeah. is, is the team, because um, it's so much easier to accomplish things when you've got two rather than one. Oh, I love that. And especially because we have complementary skills. You know, we kind of fit together really well like a puzzle piece. Oh, um, somebody's somebody's the bass and, and somebody's the treble. Right, <laughs> exactly, exactly. And I can't tell you which is which, but in a way, you tune each other. This is what happens. Yeah, I'm probably the bass and rhythm, like when I play keyboards. Like I have sort of the, I hold down, you know, what we're going to do. We have a project, and, and I know what that project is going to be, and then Gary just comes in and solos over it, you know, like a monster guitar player and comes up with the greatest creative ideas. Well, you, you are the goddess. 
<laughs> and and yeah. he and and he is the um, great appreciator of the goddess. Yes, well, it takes two. It does. It does exactly. It definitely does. Oh my goodness. Well, I appreciate you and your friendship and your love and your support. And I do uh, want to thank you so much for being wonderful guests and lovely people forever and ever and just keep doing what you're doing and this is love the secret weapon thanks donna we had white horses and ladies by the store all dressed in satin and waiting by the door. Ooh, what a lucky man he was. Ooh, what a lucky man he was. Well, Donna, we've had a great time bringing Love the Secret Weapon podcast to our listeners. We certainly have, Dr. Adam. This is such a unique experience for me, and I hope you have enjoyed it just as much as I have. I love collaborating with you, and I just think it's phenomenal. You're in Adelaide, Australia. I'm in Palm Springs, California. We are in different time zones, and yet there's no distance between us. It's absolutely amazing. And I also love the idea that there's no distance between our listeners. Wherever you are in the world, we're all connected. That is the phenomenon of these times. So you and I will go on into 2021 with some fresh ideas. And I really hope that everyone enjoys their holiday loves their Christmas gatherings in in very discreet numbers, I know, and stays well and has a wonderful New Year, a very kind of modified celebration <laughs> and and that we that we reconvene uh, with you uh, on the air, and I wish you all a very merry, Merry Christmas and happy New Year. From Adam and myself, Donna. <laughs>